Hey there, my name is Mark McCartney and welcome to the What is a Good Life podcast. If you're new to this podcast over the last three years, I've interviewed nearly 200 people around this question, not to prescribe you with a universal answer, but to help you find and define your own answer to this question through sharing other people's curiosities, explorations and inquiries as to how they answer this question for themselves. While I'm also trying to share with you what I perceive to be more genuine expressions of the human experience and indeed meaningful conversations. Which brings us to the 59th edition of the What is a Good Life podcast, and I'm delighted to introduce our guest, Julie Sikafusa. Julie is a writer and artist who illustrates her own books, such as Saving Jemima, Baby Birds, and The Bluebird Effect. She is an advising editor for BWD Magazine and a naturalist at home in the Appalachian foothills of Ohio, where every day she roams the 80-acre sanctuary she lives on, a wellspring for her writing and art. Her contribution to a beautiful movie I watched in pursuit of silence utterly captivated me. So I was thrilled to have this chance to sit down and talk with her. In this enlivening conversation, Julie shares her journey from just about making ends meet to becoming an author and illustrator and living on her own sanctuary. She imparts important lessons along the way, such as a gratitude for life, born out of her observations of the hardship of nature and from the deaths of her father and her husband. We explore the emotional relationship she has cultivated with the birds that she has rehabilitated, as well as the importance of relationship with animals in realizing more connection in our lives. She also touches on the significance of silence, solitude, and unconstructed time and space for her creative process and following her own nature. This entire conversation was good for my soul. It's inspiring to be in the company of someone who so fully embraces and follows their own nature with such conviction. This episode will reinforce your gratitude for simply existing and surviving and open you up to the possibilities of more love and connection in our lives, whether with animals or humans, as well as what can happen if you simply trust your own nature. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and took so much from it, and I'm sure you will too. And if you enjoy this episode, please like, share and subscribe. And if you're on the podcasting platforms, please continue to leave your lovely reviews as I greatly appreciate your support at this stage of my podcasting journey. So without further ado, the 59th episode of the What is a Good Life podcast. Uh, Julie, thank you very much for joining me today on the What is a Good Life podcast. As I just mentioned to you there in our little pre-chat, I caught a glimpse of some of what you shared in in a movie called In Pursuit of Silence, um, and I was absolutely captivated by what you shared. And so I was really intrigued to speak with you today. Oh, thank you so much. That was was an amazing experience. I went out to Denver for a, a conference uh, on silence, which was just revelatory to me. I mean, who thinks about silence? But oddly enough, it was my my mentor in college uh, when I was an undergraduate at Harvard, um, Kurt Fristrup, who worked for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for many years, who has become intensely interested in the value and the pursuit of silence. And he organized the conference. And I was shocked when he asked me to come participate. But you know, I guess I had something to, to contribute. You know, usually I do kick these things off with the question of, is there a question you're trying to answer as you move through life? But I would just like to share what you said in the movie that particularly caught my attention and maybe even just for you to, to share some of your thoughts on that now. Um, you mentioned, uh, I call what I do the art of disappearing. It's a situational awareness. Uh, it's a richness of being. And just curious as to as to where that came from, or or what even you could elaborate on that now. I would say that that whole ethos started when I was a little kid. You know, always alone, uh, because I was the only kid I knew who wanted to be in the woods all the time. And so, you know, I sort of expanded my exploration from a from a five acre patch behind my suburban home in Richmond, Virginia to um, living now on an 80-acre sanctuary in Southeast Ohio. And I will be honest, one of my uh, pursuits here was not to be able to see any neighbors and preferably not to be able to hear them either. (laughs) Because generally (laughs) in Appalachian, Ohio, what you hear is four-wheelers growling. And those are, you know, like gator things that people ride around on and and go mudden, as they say, uh, or you'll hear gunshots, or you'll hear automatic weapon fire, you know, people just kind of letting it all hang out, out here in the country. And I certainly get a lot of that. But the trade off is I don't get other people's TVs, leaf blowers, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, 
on a daily basis. I, I get the, the silence that I desperately need to do my thinking. So I guess that's where it all started. And, um, you know, I, as I look back on my life, I, I've been, I've been after that solitude. I've been after that, that peace and that oneness with nature. And if I had to buy it to get it, that's what I did. And just curious then, like where, like even, I know you're saying from a, a young child, even spending time in the woods, what, like what, what kind of effect does that solitude have just on your, not even just your, the art of disappearing, but even just, as you mentioned there, even your thinking or your sense of being in the world? Well, I guess as an artist, I'm always looking for unstructured time and space. I'm always looking for that, you know, the outside world to sort of leave me be so that inspiration can hit. And, and as I, as a writer and as a painter, that's, that's been the driver. I never actually know what my next book is going to be because something will happen, you know, that, that grabs me like, uh, in 2017, I raised a baby blue jay and that became a book uh, complete with paintings to illustrate it. And this incredible sort of journey with this bird who kept getting all these different illnesses. And <laughs> so, you know, I guess what I'm saying is you have to be willing, or I, I need to be willing to let serendipity take the reins in my life and just say, well, here's what you're going to do now. Um, and being a wildlife rehabilitator, I certainly get those opportunities where somebody just comes with a box full of baby wrens like last summer and says, oh, cat killed their parents. What are you going to do? You know, <laughs> here you go. And so then my summer last summer was all about raising uh, four Carolina wrens. And it was the most enchanting, charming summer anyone could have. So, you know, I'm trying to get a book out of that in between renovating my house and, and editing a magazine. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm always kind of fighting, as I say, I'm always kind of straight arming uh, the outside world, which wants pieces of me and, and, and trying to get that solitude core uh, and keep that sacrosanct so that I can think about what I want to think about and write about what I want to, want to write about. It's a constant battle. I guess everybody has that battle. But this is a, but there's something so fascinating about this, like almost creating the space for serendipity to, to take its course. And then, yes. but serendipity seems to, or, you know, the world keeps on asking you a lot of questions then, or, or, or <laughs> makes a lot of requests of you then. Yeah. Yeah, actually. And, and I'm always, it's, I've got kind of a weird chart. I'm a Leo with Aries rising but I have a moon in Scorpio. So I have this need to be, ta-da, you know, let me share this fabulous thing. And then I have this other need to be, leave me alone. <laughs> you know, so I'm always, there are these two halves of my personality. And, and what people don't get when they see me in public is that the introvert really is the queen here. And she, she is the one that does the things that they're interested in, that then I occasionally go out and talk about but then I retreat back to my little castle, you know, so I can do more of those <laughs> introverty things and then, you know, occasionally trot them out. But the, the, the way I'm comfortable doing it is writing about it, you know, sharing my photographs and paintings and, and just saying, here, here you go. Here's what I've, here's what I've observed. And, and I'll be just here creating more of this and you guys enjoy. And uh, so that's, you know, I, I, I embrace that sort of side of my personality because if I weren't, a kind of a kooky, nutty introvert, none of this would happen. You know, I wouldn't stop and raise four wrens instead of, you know, doing what normal people do. So <laughs> it's, uh, you know, you just have to go with what the way you're wired, I guess. Just, uh, I saw a video of yours on YouTube um, a few weeks back where you were just kind of giving a brief uh, history or of how, how we've got to this point. And I was really intrigued by... Almost the, the willingness to, you, you said at one point to make, uh, you were kind of making ends meet from your illustrations, um, but it, it seemed like there was a, I don't know, like a deep sense of trust or something about how you were approaching life or, or there was a space in which you gave yourself, I don't know, I don't know what you needed to, to unfold, if, if that makes sense. There was just something the way you, you said it that, it, I don't know, it struck me as, a quiet confidence or, or something to that effect. Um, what, yeah, I, what, I think, what do you think allowed that? 
Well, I, I think I'm, I've always been sort of a financial nomad, you know, and it kind of like, well, if I keep walking through this desert, I'm going to find a, a bush full of fruit that I can eat. And then there will be a water hole somewhere. You know? <laughs> so, so I think that, you know, in an earning sense, you know, I started off working as a preserve design intern for the Nature Conservancy. And for, for uh, seven years, I just kind of roamed around the state of Connecticut, you know, assaying endangered species and kind of like figuring out what they needed to survive and reporting back the nature conservancy. But, you know, for this, I was paid about a thousand dollars per summer. And then I, I was to live on that and that was okay. You know, I, I made that work and I saved money because my dad told me I had to save money. And <laughs> I think back on it now and I'm just like, I don't know how you did that kid, but, but you know, I, I knew that I wanted to be in the woods. I knew that I wanted to work in conservation. And so, you know, I did whatever it was. And and so I wound up living sort of, I house sat for, for rich people. And so I would live in their houses. And I, I remember one year I moved 12 times, wow. you know, living out of boxes and things. And, and I'm so glad that I didn't know how crazy that was, that, you know, that it was just like, well, okay, I'll just kind of blow with like a little puff of milkweed dust and wind up here and live here for a while. And, uh, and, and I also, you know, I got to live in some amazing places where I got to be alone and do my painting. And so it was kind of like a big incubator. Um, so yeah, always have had that sort of trust that, that I'm going to catch myself. And, you know, the whole thrust was never work in a cubicle, you know, just, just don't let yourself ever be confined like that. And so that's, that's the driver. And, um, and that's, that's what I did. Wow, like, is there, am I projecting too much onto it to suggest that there's some sort of like, uh, by never restricting yourself like that, or, or always giving yourself the, I don't know, the, the space to, to pursue what you love, that there is, there's some kind of connection between that. And an, I'm not necessarily saying an outcome or something, but there's just, I, I don't know, there's such, um, the, not the conviction or the force of it, but even just there's something even about maybe observing nature or something and just seeing how things unfold. Or is there anything in that that you think just kind of allowed? That's actually, that's actually lovely. I mean, it, what's that biblical verse about the beasts of the field? You know, they don't worry about anything. They just kind of move through their lives. And, and yeah, I mean, I've, I've never actually made that connection. Well, yeah, I actually have. I've written poems about that, about about, you know, here's this, here's this robin in a mulberry tree and it finds this sudden, you know, windfall and it's going to eat and then it'll just fly on and somewhere else there'll be another mulberry tree for it or something. I think I, I envy the creatures the way they move through their, through their lives and the way they move through their environments. And it's, it's hard, you know, they, they get hurt and they, they get diseases and, and they, they get hungry but they also aren't necessarily um, confined to a structure the way so many of us confine ourselves to a structure. I mean, so many people say to me, oh, I want your life. I, I, I wish I had time to X, Y, Z. And I say, you mean you wish you made time to X, Y, Z, right? So... I, I like to get people thinking about the fact that they are the captain of their own fates and, and that it's okay to take a day and just be in the woods or a few hours and nobody's, you know, making you do anything that you do. You get to decide. It's, it's amazing though, how I, d I don't know, I guess compelling. Um, I don't know whether it is or, the myths that our culture tells us or maybe uh, getting caught up in the herd, whatever it may be. It, it's amazing how compelling it is for people uh, to think that the opposite is, is almost true. Like there's, yes. um, yes. I, I had an experience where I, I took a year off to, to live in the countryside in South America. And when I was telling my friend that I was doing this, uh, he proceeded to tell me that he wished he could he could have done that, and I know mm -hmm. that he probably made a multiple of what I made that year. Yes, um, of course, yeah. And and so it's and even just how you were describing your point, or you know, thinking how crazy it was how you were living. 
Is that, it was. I sometimes wonder, but I, but I also wonder as well, is, is, that, is that like, it's kind of interesting because it's kind of funny how we can define crazy being someone just actually just living out their own life. Like, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, there's all shades of it. I mean, I have friends who I consider crazy, you know, who live sort of the way I did when I was young. And, and I, I slap myself and say, Julie, come on, you know, there's got to be room in this world for the poets and the people who are okay living on very little, as long as they can do what they are meant to do. And, and it's, it's a process of, I mean, I just try not to get too fossilized, you know, and, and set in my ways and thinking this is the only way I can be happy and comfortable. And, you know, and even as I watch myself, I have these out of body experiences. Like right now I'm completely tearing apart my house so that I can get it painted because, you know, 32 years of the same paint and carpet might be time. (laughs) And and so, so I've, I've spent the last month or so just, you know, tearing everything. I was basically like having to move only you're staying in the same place because you have to clear right. everything out. So, you know, that's what I'm doing. And I keep saying there will be a reward at the end. This is okay. You can do this. You have, I give you permission to just sit there and sort books for two weeks. That's, that's okay. You could do that. <laughs> Trying to be gentle with myself and not say, you should be writing your book. <laughs> you just have to do what you need to do. <laughs> yeah. That's a, uh... That's a beautiful way of putting it, though. Like, uh, and uh, and I think, you know, from a number of people that I've talked to that are not not pursue or they're making more space for silence in their lives. I think a big misconception at times is that there's a there's a nothingness that happens, like, or you know that, or that if if we're not driving ourselves or berating ourselves, that something won't get done. <laughs> Whereas, <laughs> but. Yeah. You know, like our heart keeps beating, our cells yeah. keep reproducing, we still need to go to the toilet, we still need to eat. And just like that, all the other stuff yeah. seems to happen as well. And I remember when I had a newborn, I think that was a, the hardest adjustment of my life was having a baby and suddenly having this tiny little squirmy thing that was completely dependent on me for everything. I was like, what have I done? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And I remember someone very wise saying to me, look, this is going to be your job for a while. Just accept it. If you get nothing done in the day, but that that baby is alive and happy at the end of the day and well-fed, you've done a good job. This is okay. And convincing myself of that, that I, that I shouldn't also be producing, you know, the world's greatest masterpieces was such a struggle. And in fact, the year my daughter Phoebe, who is now 27, was born, I had my biggest earning year in freelance art of my life. <laughs> because I was so worried that it would all come to a crashing halt, right? So I said yes to every job. And I had that baby in a sassy seat on my drawing table, kicking her little feet while I was working. And it worked. And I was like, oh my God, life after baby, you can actually do this, you know? So I relaxed a little bit, especially with my second child, Liam, and who's now just turned 24. And it was a lot easier with him because I was like, yeah, this is my job and it'll get easier as I go on. But, you know, I'm going to have to do some grunt work here. I'm just going to have to give in to the force that is being a parent. So I just think people are so hard on themselves and they, they kick themselves for so many things that they shouldn't be kicking themselves for. And uh, I just try to try to be a little kinder to myself uh, rather than expect the world every day, you know? And if, was it what that friend had said or was were there other things that have kind of contributed to you like, being being somewhat kinder to yourself then as 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 you've moved on from since then absolutely i think that the perspective that i've gotten is actually watching my husband die of pancreatic cancer at 57 and if there were ever a perspective adjuster that is it because it's been five years now and it it was the most unthinkable thing for his life to end Right. When he wasn't anywhere near done and to help him through that and to watch him grapple with that finality and to grapple with it myself was the ultimate uh, perspective changer. It made me realize that the things that I 
usually wind up worrying about are midges in the air. There, there's nothing to that. And so, you know, somebody sends me a nasty gram. I'm like, eh, it's not pancreatic cancer, is it? Right. Something breaks, something needs repair. I'm like, looks like I'm going to have to move some money around, you know, <laughs> get that repaired. I just don't get, I just don't get as upset about anything since having gone through that. And is like, is that a, an awareness of even just the, like, is there a, a gratitude for, for what we have in life from that? Is there a... Yes. Being here. Yeah. Getting to be here. Getting to be here. Huh. Uh, we did a green burial on our land. He picked the spot. I go out and visit him every morning and I tell him a little bit of what's going on. And that daily reinforcement that that could be me under those cone flowers is all I need to keep perspective on the little crap that is always trying to commit that death by a thousand cuts. You know, it's like, Oh, this happened. And then this happened, you know, but, <laughs> so. but, but isn't, isn't that from both things you mentioned there about the, the realization that you're just being here another day. And then even with uh, your first, with your daughter, like a, a friend saying, if she just, if she survives to the end of the day and she's healthy and she's happy. And if you think about like that, be those being absolutely fundamentally important things, Mm -hmm. and how little credit or time we spend reflecting in any given day that that's that's what we've got at the end of the day do you, right. do you know what i mean oh yes oh yes yeah yeah exactly it's it, it comes down to gratitude and my favorite people are the grateful ones who hmm. who get that every day is a gift every day opens up like a new page in a book and you get to write on it you know and you get to choose what you write and how it's going to be. And I, I think that the thing I have the least patience for is ingratitude. Um, when people don't realize that they are given this gift. I remember when my father, who was my most incredible mentor and I mean, just a storyteller and physics teacher and engineer. He just, he knew about everything and he knew so much about nature and he's why he and my mom are why I am who I am today. And I remember the day he died in 1994, Kurt Cobain committed suicide. Right. And I was so angry at Kurt Cobain because I said, if I could just put my dad in your healthy young body, he really didn't want to leave, you know, and, and yet I understand the struggles Kurt must have gone through now much better, but my visceral reaction was, can, can I just use your body? You know, if you're going to throw it away, can I just give it to my dad? Um, and I'm still kind of mad at him, but I have no right to be, you know, but that was a, that was a moment for me, you know, where, um, it's hard to watch somebody who is such a liver of life have to stop, have to leave, you know? Yeah. It's, uh, it sounds like a, um, this isn't meant, meant to be some trite or silver lining of something, but it sounds like a beautiful ritual of, of visiting, uh, visiting your husband and telling him the, about the day or whatever it may be as yeah. a beautiful ritual and uh, as you say like a continuous act of well, both connection and gratitude i'm assuming right 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 there is another place i mean i i love cemeteries always have i i love to look at headstones i love to read them and see what you know look for the spanish flu epidemic and you know oh yeah 1918 and so i'm i there's a little graveyard i visit a lot where there's a headstone um the congletons and they lost uh their daughter when she was two, I think, and their son when he was 20. And there's a line at the bottom that says, we will be reunited in heaven. And uh, their daughter, I think, was born right around when my daughter in July, mid-July, only, you know, 100 years earlier. And I just think about how lucky I am to still have both my kids, you know, and, hmm. and not to have to 
have a headstone made for them, you know, that says, oh, we'll see you later, you know? So I just think there's so much to be grateful for in life every single day um, that I don't want to waste a minute of it. I just, if I'm given a day, I'm going to try and use it as well as I can and, and uh, you know, make it count, I guess. Just in terms then of, let's say, just curious then as to your your lead into let's say um like rehabilitating animals as well then just kind of mm-hmm. like kind of even when you mentioned the the four baby wrens earlier and i i know the the book you you mentioned before like saving jemima um <laughs> is this where does that kind of fit in the in that appreciation in that like that like that does that does that make it very present as well this uh, this kind of commitment to to another yeah. creature or well each each little thing that i'm brought that that i'm asked to help and save and raise is a door that opens into their world and so i had always wanted to raise wrens because <laughs> this is going to sound really weird but when i was in in college, I was a field assistant in Amazonian Brazil, and I my job, one of them, was to take birds and make study skins of them for a collection, an ornithological collection. And so they were taken from a mist net. They were killed. This is old-style ornithology. Handed to me, and I would, through tears, prepare their skins. And I noticed that the genus Triotherus, which includes the Carolina wren, had the biggest damn brains I'd ever seen on a bird proportionate to the size. And I started thinking about this in 1979, you know, like, huh, that's a really big brain for a really small bird. And then the more experiences I got with triathlene wrens through my life, I realized there's something very, very special going on with these birds that correlates to that huge brain. And so I had always wanted to raise one and events always conspired. I had had two or three in my care for short periods of time. Um, but I didn't get to raise them to adulthood. And in fact, one, uh, like a fool, uh, I, I took care of a baby that was left in the nest on my front porch one summer and it had a tremor. And so the parents said, that one's no good. We're just going to leave it and we'll go off with the healthy ones. Well, like an idiot and a human, I took in the little one with the tremor and I had that bird for 30 days and before he died of a a supposed brain tumor. Um, And what what that bird taught me in 30 days about their capacity, their emotional and intellectual capacity was just the most tantalizing thing ever. I just, I I thought someday I'm going to get a healthy one and I'm going to raise it. And and sure enough, I got, I got four. So that was, like I said, it it was just a gift to be given these birds and to, you know, commit myself to raising them because what I learned last summer about them is just incredible and, um, you know, really needs to be a book. So yeah, uh, I would say that they're, that it's just, um, it's like, it's like, Oh, now I get to learn about Carolina wrens and I open the door and I walk into the world of, of these, of these birds. Can you describe whether even if it was with the first 30 day experience with the, with the bird with the tremor or even the, the four wrens themselves, like just what, when you say tantalizing, like what, can you elaborate just on what you were noticing or experiencing? Well, the thing, yeah, the thing that completely surprised me about them was their ability to bond with a human being. They're extremely social birds and they are very, they like to keep close contact with their broodmates. They're always touching shoulders, roosting together, sleeping together, cuddling together. But in the absence of broodmates, they do that with people. So right. the the amazing thing to me was that they could take this big gangly primate and say, oh, here's your cheek. I'm going to cuddle up again. <laughs> you know? It's like, how does a tiny bird sort of understand how to get inside the heart of a, of a huge primate and, and want to? So I thought, okay, if I raise a brood of four, they're going to be all happy with each other and they won't do this as much now. Like I, like I would go out, I'd raise them in a tent in my detached garage. So they'd have a lot of space to kind of careen around and also in the house. And um, I would go out to feed them every, every 40 minutes. I had an iPhone 
alarm set on my phone that went off every 40 minutes. I go out feed them. And then afterwards they would all like fly to my hand and cuddle there. And they wanted to be put right here. And then they wanted to go to sleep. (laughs) This is crazy. You know, it's just, it's just, it's the most heart melting thing. And the ways that the, the intelligent things they did, like after I released them from the tent, they returned for three more weeks to my garage every night at the same time. And they would fly back into the tent, fly into this little wad of pink fleece in a pocket in the side of the tent where they had slept as babies. And then they wanted me to zip up the the tent door so they'd be safe in there and close the garage doors. So they spent all day outside being wild wrens, getting their own food, but they still wanted to sleep in their pink fleece. So now I have a wad of pink fleece in a bucket outside my front door and there are two wrens sleeping in it every night. And so I would sit in a chair in my foyer, you know, eight months later watching these birds come in and I'm thinking, well, you know, they could be wild wrens or they could be mine the fact that they're seeking out pink fleece kind of suggests that they might've been raised here. Um, so it's that kind of thing that the unexpected little, um, little uh, idiosyncrasies and, and the cool stuff that they do uh, took me by surprise. Always birds always surprise me. Well, it's just the, the notion that they may be yours um, and still seeking that, like that, that almost like brings up a sense of like connection to home or like a, an emotional resonance with, with something like it, 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 that sounds absolutely beautiful. It is, it is. And they, they also, I sit right inside the foyer window in the evening and watch them come to roost and they are not perturbed by me in the least, you know, and there's also a song sparrow in the yard that follows me around the yard singing. Well, I've raised four over the past four years, uh, one brood of three and one singleton. And uh, three of the four were males. So the chances are there that this bird that is completely unafraid of me and singing in my yard now could be one of mine. A lot of people ask me if I banned the birds that I that I raise and the fish and wildlife service won't let generally rehabbers ban their birds because they consider it a waste of bands. Uh, they think that artificially hand raised birds have no chance of survival in the wild. So why waste an aluminum band? I disagree if they're raised right and they're released right. Um, which is to say a very long drawn out soft release where they're supported with food and, and they're free to come and go until they really have a handle on how to for it. Um, I think they do very well. And I just wish that I knew, you know, th- that these were my birds. I just, I, I can only have a feeling. Yeah. What, what do you feel? Oh, <laughs> I think that crazy song sparrow is, was one of mine. I just don't know which one it is. I call out the names. I go, Bob, <laughs> Dustin, is that you? And, uh, it's just, a, you know, it's kind of a snow white feeling. It's, it really is, is pretty incredible. And I have friends who still say to me, I remember when I came to your house and a bluebird landed on my hand and I almost died. You know, um, yeah. that's kind of an everyday thing for us here. And, it, I, I realize keenly that it is not an everyday thing. It's it's magic. It, well, magical was the the word in my head there. Like, mm-hmm. could you could you even describe what it is to have that feeling that they are um, that they are indeed the the birds that you've raised? Like, does it? Oh, oh espe- your heart especially explodes. yeah, especially when in kind of contradiction to let's say what the the conventional belief around it is and you know given the contrast there yeah i mean i mean i think the public at large regards birds and i'm looking out at about 30 of them right now at my feeders i think they regard birds as little automatons that just kind of randomly fly around and maybe they come to the feeder and eat some seed but they people don't tend to connect that that would be the same chickadee every day um who likes to approach from the northeast and who takes a seed and pounds it on that particular twig. And, you know, if you're really watching, you can, you can make those connections. Um, The feeling that I get when one of my babies unequivocally comes back, I just, I just burst. It's just, it's the most joyful thing. Um, I raised a cedar waxwing 
one summer and released it uneventfully. They are flocking birds. So when the bird is ready to go and a flock of cedar waxwings comes, comes by, they're gone. They join the flock. Even though they've been hand-raised, they, they know who they are. So one winter day, I, I went out on my deck and there was a flock of cedar waxwings just literally booking overhead very quickly. And one bird gave a juvenile call and made a sharp back turn and circled over my head giving the juvenile call. Who do you think hmm. that might have been? Why would a wild cedar waxwing do that? Had the same thing happen with a rose-breasted grosbeak, not in a flock, but just came out of nowhere, circled down, gave the baby begging call, circled, circled, to, kept on going. And so they do say hello. They do come back. And and I had a, I had a Phoebe the spring after I raised two um, come back, use the bird bath, which is something that Phoebes don't do here, but he had learned to do that. And um, when I called him, approached closer, came, came right up to me. And I knew that was Luther. So it is humbling and heart exploding to have these birds seek me out. And, you know, after they've migrated to Central America and come back, you know, <laughs> it's just incredible. That's, uh, that's absolutely remarkable. There's, um, I'm even kind of getting a sense of it in my own chest right now. Like, I, like, I, I can't, like, I, like, obviously I, I can't imagine I'm trying to equate to things that, that, um, that would create such a feeling, but there's a, just even earlier when you mentioned like a birds kind of, uh, snuggling or nestling up against even under your chin or up mm -hmm. against your cheek as well. Mm -hmm. it, it, it made me think straight away of even just a thought that I was having yesterday when, um, when my dog jumped up on me and there's just these very curious moments sometimes when I'm looking at her and I'm like going like, this is utterly remarkable. Like, you know, she's yes. a, a, a rescue from Romania. And so a place I've never been to in my life, um, whatever serendipitous moments brought us together in life. Um, and now there's just such an overwhelming connection and it, it does yes. make me think of, and not even just with children, like, I'm not trying to, this may sound strange, but like, we don't pick our children, right? Like, right. you know, we, we have our children. And so someone said, I recently was in a conversation recently, and someone said, their child said to them, well, mommy, you didn't pick me. Uh, if you, if anyone else had come, you would have loved them just like you love me. And mm. while I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to devalue our relationship with our children, but there's just something about what you're saying, which just fills me up with the sense of like, man, there's a huge possibility for love, like just yeah. serendipitous love, like just a, a reaching into us, a reaching into our chests, which mm -hmm. many of us just go about our life keeping very kind of small circles of people that can, that can experience that or that we'd give that to. But there's something mm -hmm. about this that just makes me think, wow, like, even like if the bird's capable of, as you say, coming back from uh, from South America, Central America, whatever, like, yeah. and and that there's there's something almost like a almost like a magnetic field to the energy or the love that we give off. It sounds remarkable. You're absolutely right, and and I think of myself as an ombudsman for birds because so few people give them the credit for being able to form those bonds for recognizing human individuals who they may feel, I'm not going to say gratitude to, but I, I get the feeling. I also have a rescue dog. I'm sure he's aware that he landed in Clover when I pulled him out of that shelter. And like you, I sometimes step back and look and I say, here's this animal that chooses to be with me and that thinks I'm the best thing in his life. <laughs> You know, <laughs> no wonder we love animals. You know, we can actually, we can construct that relationship, which is sometimes so elusive with humans, but we yes. can take that relationship and we, we can make it, we can take a dog. It's like a piece of clay and we can kind of mold it and say, you are my best friend I have created, <laughs> you know, like Frankenstein or something. And, and to, then to be able to do that with birds, who most people don't give a lot of emotional real estate to 
is pretty cool. Um, I just need to tell you another story about hummingbirds. Um, one of my books called uh, The Bluebird Effect, it has 25 chapters or something, each one about relationships, my relationships with this species. So it goes species by species. And I was joking as I was writing that it could have been called hummingbirds and other birds I've raised because the, the hummingbird chapter is this huge chapter because right. I had a whole summer where completely devoted to hummingbirds. And um, two of the males, um, Rufus and Adventure Joe, uh, hung out together as young ones and, you know, were around the yard and everything. And then September comes, they all migrate and they're gone for the entire winter. And I spend the whole winter thinking, okay, they got to fly across the Gulf of Mexico twice. Hope there aren't any hurricanes. They're going to come, you know, up through the Southeast. They're going to maybe come back to the same yard where they were raised. Will I know them? And it was an April morning. They normally arrive here on the 17th of April. And my husband, Bill, stepped out on the front porch with a mug of coffee in his hand. And an adult male ruby-throated hummingbird came up and poked his bill in between every one of Bill's fingers as he held his mug. He goes, Zick, I think one of your babies is back. <laughs> so I, I go into this frenzy and I, and I get the, the little baby feeder that they used as when they were babies. And I whip up some of this brown protein solution that I gave them as babies. This was a test. I wanted to see. And so I'm hanging this feeder up with this cruddy stuff in it that no hummingbird in his right mind would try to drink, right? unless he knew the stuff. And there are two adult male ruby-throated hummingbirds literally flying in and out of my arms as I'm hanging this feeder up. And then later that same day, I see the two adult males sitting side by side on a twig that they sat on when they were babies by the front door. It's almost like having the spirits come and say, yes, this is really me. You know, I'll give you a sign. You know, it was, it was one of those things where, where I just unequivocally knew that those were my guys. And, uh, that was, that was just the best. It was worth all the work. There's a couple of things that are oh, coming crazy. to mind. And, and I think this, this speaks to, um, you know, relationships with anyone and even I think just our perspectives or our interpretation of life that being a capacity to like notice like so when you deeply pay attention to the world you can start to see things that maybe other people are proclaiming that don't exist but perhaps mm -hmm. if they were to sit still enough uh, to observe enough to notice enough that things mm -hmm. then that you don't even need um a scientific verification of something to know something in your heart like i yes i kind of i kind of have a suspicion sometimes as much as we try to associate the word true and fact i think the truth sometimes is a felt experience if you pay enough attention and yeah. there's something just to experiences that we don't have to second guess and then that would bring me to my kind of second idea around this there's a trouble if we just try to intellectualize everything like there's a trouble, of course, you know, some sense of rationality or logic is important. It's how a lot of us get through our days. But if it comes, if it becomes so, if it becomes so dominant over our other senses, I think there's a lot of kind of truth sensory points in our field of experience or existence, you know, whether that could be any of our, you know, sight, taste, whatever, like even our, but even just our heart, our feeling. And I think if we, if we kind of smother those senses a lot, we stick in this very like, you know, logic dominated thing where we have to have everything laid out one, one plus one equals two, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. we don't see anything outside of the equation. And I, I, I don't know, just the way you're mm -hmm. describing this to me there, that would speak to so many different things, uh, different relationships, just our way of being in the world that these, these moments seem to, I don't know, speak volumes of how you're experiencing life. One of the things I'm proudest of is when I meet ornithologists who say they love my writing hmm. because these are people who have been trained to put it into numbers and yeah. only present evidence that proves what their, their hypothesis, right? 
Yeah. And yet, if they're paying attention, they know that there's something very special going on with birds. And I have never, I have always wanted to straddle the camps of science and policy because I don't want to belong to either one entirely. I, I have an, enough of an inquiring mind to want to prove that that's the same bird, but I can't. So I have to be okay with the uncertainty. All I can do is show the evidence that I collect that suggests what I'm saying is so. Yeah. And I have to just leave it there and let the reader decide. But as an editor, nothing turns me off faster than somebody submitting a manuscript that says, I know that the Cardinals in my yard, Joey and Matilda are in love. Um, you know, Joey feels very blah, blah, blah. <laughs> no. Just yeah, yeah, tell yeah. me that Joey is feeding Matilda. I don't want to, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to hear what you think Joey's thinking, you know? So, yeah. so show don't tell is, yeah. is the credo. And I think that's why the ornithologist will, will read my stuff. Yeah. You know, because I'm very careful to present it sort of like it could be, you know, There's... but I don't want to assert anything. There's something you said earlier, though, that um, both even in experience with the dog, but also birds as well, of uh, they kind of, you know, when you were mentioning earlier about just the getting a, getting your child through the day with your daughter, like, you know, your friend saying this, um, then just the gratitude um, from, from losing loved ones of even just having got through or just having had the opportunity for another day. And then these animals they just celebrate us being there right you know like i think of my dog like you know i sometimes i just go out and take out the trash and and then i get this huge like waggy tail and this huge celebration <laughs> of my return you know if i if i if i paused and maybe delayed my return by 5 minutes or something like this is right. like wow you're here and there is mm -hmm. something about that and i don't know how we I don't know how we experience that more with humans. I, I do believe when we maybe have a certain amount of, of love or open-heartedness for other human beings, we do get to experience that sometimes with humans. But there is something to what you're saying there that I just think it's it's so unfortunate that we don't do that because the yes. like the the un, untethered, like the unbounded joy that my dog experienced of me just walking home, like that's... <laughs> <laughs> I know. You know. I know. Like, like I'll say to gift. Curtis, yeah, I, I'll say to Curtis, do you want to go to the mailbox and see what we got? And he's like, yes. You know, it's kind of like uh, Steve Martin in the in the movie. What it wasn't the the jerk? Was it the jerk? He he goes he goes to the mailbox and he gets the new phone book and he comes jumping down the driveway saying, yes. the new phone books are here. <laughs> the new phone books are. Here. <laughs> that's a recurring theme in my life you know i'll sometimes find myself getting so excited about maybe finding a dropping of a pileated woodpecker in a pile of wood shavings where they've been working and i'm like the new phone books are here you know? <laughs> because that's that's it's that important to me you know to to find this dropping and then pick it apart and see oh look at all the ant skulls in this dropping you know it's the stuff that you just got to go with the stuff that lights your fire that you know yeah. And not but, worry about whether it's a societal okay or not. But you said something earlier, just that may it just made me think of it there as well, just with the kind of the spontaneity, the spontaneity of just something arriving, and then that that alters your your focus or your enjoyment or your excitement, whatever it be. And you just you mentioned the phrase earlier, uh, unstructured time and space. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. I just could you elaborate on on what you're oh. what you're pointing to there? Well. I, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's just such a, such a quest thing for me, um, unstructured time and space, uh, because it is the blank canvas on which I can paint, whether it's writing something or, or, you know, getting, getting an essay out or, or doing a drawing. Um, it's, it's like, it's like food. It's that essential you know, to, to have days where I get to decide what I'm going to do with them. And that's, that's my driver always. That's, that's what I search for. And it's funny. I mean, I absolutely love seeing people 
And yet having house guests kind of sends me into this sort of anxiety fit because I'm like, oh, oh no, I got to. I got to go shop. I got to get food. I got to make sure they're fed. I got to wash the beds. And it's, it becomes this whole sort of like, Oh, what am I going to do? Um, you know, so I'm, I'm always kind of like struggling with that, that desire, that lust for unstructured time and, and sort of society pulling me back and saying, Oh, but we're coming on Friday. You know, it's like, Oh, okay. <laughs> let me, let me get, let me, tell this artist to shut up and sit down and then get that, get out the side of myself that is willing to cater to others. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's just um, there. It's like these two halves of my personality, you know, I'm super nurturing, but I also really, really need to be, to be off, it's, off it's, and doing my thing. It's funny you mentioned that I had a conversation with a very good friend who had to cancel short notice for an engagement over at our place on Saturday. And I said, um, it was great because before you came, we, we felt the compelled to tidy everything up and put some order to it. And then when you didn't come, right. you were just left with this blank time. And it was, you know, I'm, I'm not, <laughs> I, he, he knows me well yeah. enough not, not to take that personally, sure. but we were both like yeah. looking forward to their visit and happy that they didn't come. Yeah, <laughs> you, you yeah exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Either, either one is fine. And yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's definitely, I, I get that. I get that. And I'm glad you have a friend that you feel comfortable saying that to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't come. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was wonderful. Uh, but what, what does it represent to you then? Like, because for me, in the last number of years, uh, I'd been I left a career and it was in finance at the time, and I knew for a long time that it wasn't for me. And but I just left large spaces in in my like. I had very few plans and there's something there's something that I just gave space to whatever was going to um, emerge to to emerge. And there, there's something nice. I, I, I don't know, there's something in this life about I, I and I, look, it was a privilege, too, that I could uh, that I could have the space to do that. But I really I couldn't imagine where some of my inquiries have gone over the last, you know, five or six years. Um, and I just thought, man, if. If more people, and it's once again, it's not, it's like you said though, it's a commitment. Like there was regular things that I would have been expected to do and acquire and a timeline uh, that could have ma- said to me, okay, well, no, you can't do this because you've got these payments to make and you've got to do that. But yeah. in just in in completely opening up the the potential for where my life could go. I was able to discover things that I never had to force. I was almost like finding out. Mm-hmm. And just the way you're mm-hmm. describing even just this empty or this unstructured time and space, the blank canvas for things to un- unfold upon, I really think that's a real gift. If, you know, and of course, yeah. in your se- in sense, you, you know, you, you said you could get by on little. In my sense, I, 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 I sacrificed acquiring certain things or doing this, the conventional thing. But what comes in right. its space is... Is something indescribable, I think, that even goes beyond the outcomes that we could be chasing. Like even that in itself is the act of being that brings me peace. Sure, sure. That it's the feeling that you have control over how you're going to spend your time. Yeah. And that I was I was jotting down some ideas in my journal this morning for our conversation today, which of course needed no ideas because <laughs> you just took it and off we went. Um, but one of them was the first one I wrote down was control. Right. Uh, what did I put? Control over your time, environment, activities. Oh, love this, love this quote I read recently, and I'm, I I know I attributed it, but I don't have the attribution here, so my apologize apologies to the person who said it. I think it might have, oh, it was John Hartford, the um, folk musician. He said, essentially, the worst thing that could happen to you in terms of your career is that you find out you're really good at doing something you don't like to do. (laughs) Wow. And so here's a guy who made his living tap dancing on a board as he played banjo and sang songs that he wrote. And John Hartford is just one of my icons. And I, when I heard that quote, I was just crowing because literally how many of us figure out that we're really good at something. And so people hire us to do it. And we're just like, oh, yeah, it's this thing I do, you know, that, that I get money for. And uh, I wind up doing it all the time. Right. But like my husband said, 
right before he died, I just wish I'd been a music recording, you know, that I, that I'd been a studio guy that I had, that I had just gone into recording music, you know, keeping writing my own, playing my own. I should have been a musician. I should have been a recorder and I shouldn't have been a magazine editor. And I was just like, yeah, you should have. And I, I tried to tell him that through most of his life when he would just be tearing his hair out. I'd be like, you know, you, you could just, you could just be a musician. It'd be okay. You could do that. Oh no, I got, oh, I owe it to my family blah, 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 you know? And so, but that, that's such a great John Hartford quote. It's, it's, that, uh, it's, uh, it's quite poignant as well. I, I think like the, mm -hmm. the, the, mm -hmm. the kind of the, because I think there's a lot of conceptual traps in modern society um, and people pointing at you and saying that you're doing well or this is you're doing the good thing you're doing a good thing or you're yeah. successful yeah. and I yeah. don't know just the the thing that we like we also think that we kind of need to prove ourselves and need the trophy as well or whatever it may be to say that we're mm -hmm. doing well mm -hmm. but I'm starting to notice because I still have a I still have lots of things to realize in in my endeavors and and things that I'm exploring but what I've noticed and and I've noticed in some friends that are pursuing life in a similar way and maybe even have let go of uh, that situation that Hartford's talking about. There's something even just about the aliveness that people have um, when they go on that path. And I, like, there is something glorious about deciding what you're going to do in any given day. Like, And it doesn't mean that everything just flows and it's blissful, that you can have resistance to... <laughs> You know, like, you know, even I'm sure if you're creating a, a book and maybe even if there's a, a requirement for it to be to be finished, like, of course, there's resistance. But man, there's something yeah. really glorious about waking up. And even if you're not looking forward to it, saying like, I decided all of this. How how lucky is that? You know, it is wonderful. I, I'm guessing that you've read The War of Art. Yes. By Stephen Pressfield. Yeah, it's actually over there. Yeah. <laughs> Because you said, yeah, you said resistance, and I'm like, yeah, that's. Uh, I think he's read it, and that, that's a, that's a book that I read chapters of, you know, little little short. I actually kept it in my bathroom for a long time because it would just be. I'm just going to read a Pressfield chapter here while we're getting, taking care of stuff, and and uh, it's just such a good thing to have because you have to keep identifying resistance and saying, oh, I see you there in the corner. I know, I know your ways. I know how you get into my head and keep me from doing what I should be doing. And uh, yeah, I don't want to make it sound like all I do is prance around in the fields and, and write and, and paint because that's not at all all I do. <laughs> I do everything else that everybody else has to do. And then I also do this other stuff that fills my soul, you know? Uh, that's uh, but, uh, yeah. That's such a great book. That word, uh, that word, soul keeps on emerging in my life at the at the moment, uh, which I, which I think is a wonderful mm -hmm. thing to be able to reference. Um, Julie, yeah. just looking at the time and and you know, look reflecting kind of on the the conversation. You know, when we're talking about just the the gift or the gift of life, the the gratitude that we can have for life, identifying like unstructured time and space. Um, connection obviously a deep deep connection with nature but like also a an appreciation for solitude an appreciation for silence an appreciation for noticing and this idea as well of autonomy and control and choice in our life over over how we fill our time and what we do and so many mm -hmm. i think really fundamentally important parts of of anyone's given life uh, just really curious to ask you the question as i tend to finish these things off with with the uh, what is a good life for you, Julie? Oh, man. <sighs> Eating good food, loving the people you love, being with them, having a dog, having flowers around at all times, preferably growing, um, being able to take a walk from your front door that fills your soul, uh, getting outside as much of every day as you possibly can, having some choice over how you spend your time and loving what you do. That sounds like a, a pretty, some pretty lovely ingredients for a nice recipe there for sure for life. 
you know there is <laughs> there's something you said in also in the the movie that i that uh that i referenced at the very start and you said uh, i really like being in quite places because i use my ears for everything and there's just there's just something i think in the sense of listening and uh, not only just to the environment around us but listening to ourselves potentially listening to our soul and just noticing and things of that nature that I think can be really powerful influences in us understanding or figuring out our own life. Even as you say, if it leads us to doing things that we could interpret as crazy, uh, but somehow still had a way of working out. Uh, so look, Julie, I just want to say thank you so much to for all the things that you've shared, all the nuggets that you've, you've dropped in this conversation. And uh, thank you very, very much for joining us here on the What is a Good Life podcast today. Oh, Mark, this has been so fun. And anytime, man, just give me a ring. Thank you. So wonderful to talk with you. Thank you.